belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for February 25th, 2024 is called Jesus is Better. The speaker is John Ray and the location is Central United Methodist Church Chapel in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Well, hello again. My name is John Ray. If you're listening on the podcast or to the sound that's streaming, this is Grace Church, and we are really glad that you are here today. So one of my favorite authors is a guy named Francis Spufford, if for nothing else that his last name is Spufford. Um, he's a English literature professor, novelist, and somewhat of a um, curmudgeonly type, uh, who's also happens to be married to a um, Anglican priest. Um, she serves in the Church of England. In his compelling book on faith, though, a, fa- a, book, a book called Unapologetic, he tells the story when after a whole night of fighting and crying and fighting some more with his wife, he wearily wandered into a cafe to try to do some writing. He was despairing that their marriage could survive such a night. When the strains of Mozart's clarinet concerto, the middle movement, the adagio, came on over the sound system. As this background music seeped into the forefront of his mind, he felt, he said, like He felt it like news. It said that everything you fear is true. And yet. And yet. Everything you've done wrong, you've really done wrong. And yet. And yet. When I first picked this book up a few years back and read these lines, I broke down in tears. Not actually tears, sobs really. Um, I felt the love and the mystery and the mercy of God in such a fresh way. I felt I was being given permission to feel, to really feel the love and mercy and mystery of God without having to understand it logically, without having to defend it with doctrine or categorize it theologically. I believed it because I felt it. And as a person who was constantly taught not to trust my emotions, this was both freeing and terrifying. As we study the book of Hebrews, I'm going to suggest that one of the main arguments of the book is an emotional one. Not a theological one in the sense that we in the Western church are taught to think of theology as doctrine but it is an emotional appeal made with theological words. And that's a very different way to read Scripture than how we've been taught to read Scripture in the Western church. So it's going to take a while. I don't expect you to believe me. I don't expect you just to jump in. But I want to look at this together. But first, a review. This is our second week in Hebrews. Uh, We need to remember that this is more a sermon than a traditional letter. The author, who we don't know, is arguing for, wrestling for, pleading for the good of the reader or the hearers 
to not give up or to give in. Her audience would have been asking, have I made the right choice? Should I continue down this path or should I go back to the Judaism that I came out of? With all the challenges that we are going to face in reading this letter, all of some of the ways that they frame their worldview and things that are going to be challenges, this one thing I think gives us the biggest bridge. This is where we can understand their temptation to leave and our temptation to leave as well. Because we share a similar temptation. Now, our persecution is different than theirs. We're not facing... So I want to be quick to say the persecution that we, especially as Grace Church face, is not the same as what the readers, the original readers were facing. Our persecution, the way that I understand it, is it actually comes from the other Christians. In this church, I'm just speaking to us as Grace Church, we, we face this, this persecution from other Christians saying, are you really Christians? Practicing your faith the way you are, doing the things you're doing, are you really, truly Christian? And then there's also, it's not so much a persecution as it is an enticement from those outside of the church to say, why bother? Like, why bother? Why do you want to be part of that? Why, why even do those things? It's not a persecution so much, like I said, as an enticement of, hey, it's, why, it's just easier over here. Why, why deal with all the baggage? Why deal with all the stuff? Why, why deal with all that? And this is based on an assumption, and, and I could be wrong here, but the assumption is that if you're coming to Grace Church, if you're listening to these podcasts, you are someone who's trying to find a place where they cannot just hang on to their faith, but grow in their faith. That it's a place where you need to be able to reframe it in such a way that allows it to flourish in the world you live in. Not the world you grew up in, maybe, or the world as you wish it was, but the world you actually live in. How do we do well, the answer in some ways is the same, is we, we view everything through the lens of Jesus. We use this Christological hermeneutic, not Herman's Christmas, as uh, it probably be known from now on, um, but this Christological hermeneutic, which is that we let Jesus interpret the Bible for us. Is that God is never not like Jesus, is how this starts. And that's why that song, the, the Colossians hymn, which that was a hymn, when you read that in Colossians, we read it like, Scripture, but that was probably sung by the early church, that passage. Help them understand that Christ redefined everything. And there's also an ongoing refrain that we're going to hear, that this is why we're doing it in our communal confession, this idea that we have and because we have. That the argument is based around, here is what we have in Christ, and because we have this in Christ, we're so that's kind of the framework as we go through. But let's look at the text. So we're starting with verse 4, chapter 1. Oh, and also we did say that there's going to be large parts of this that just don't speak to us directly. And I'll explain why today. Thus he became so far better than the angels as he has inherited a name superior to those for to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have fathered you? 
And in another place he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. But when he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And he says of the angel, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and a righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. So God, your God, has anointed you over your companions with the oil of rejoicing. And you founded the earth in the beginning, Lord, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you continue. And they will all grow old like a garment and a robe. And like a robe, you will fold them all up like a garment. And like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will never run out. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation? Okay, we talked before about sampling. That is a whole bunch of cut and paste. It's, it's a whole bunch of pulling, con, pulling words out of the Old Testament, primarily out of the royal Psalms, pasting them into this argument that it might have made, did, did that make good sense? Does that, was that clear to anybody in here? Because it's not clear to me. And I've read the commentaries and I've done the study, and I defy anybody to really say, oh yeah, that, no, I got it. A lot of these scriptures, if you go back, which I did in, in preparing this, and read the scriptures in context, I struggle to see how they apply. I, I really do. I struggle to see how they, in context, enhance this argument. But again, this is not written to a modern Western audience that is secular. And we are secular in, our, secular in our thinking. How many of you go through the day constantly thinking about angels? And whose angel is where? And what angel is doing what? And how the angels are ordered? Anybody? <laughs> when you're reading Frank Peretti, yeah, oh yes. That <clears throat> um Sean Sean probably might. Um this is made to a, a very different mindset. There are two big challenges. Like I said, the bridge I think we get is the encouragement. The bridge we get is, hey, hang on, it's worth it. And not just hang on, but rejoice. And the way we get that is through, is through looking at Jesus, focusing on Jesus. The challenges, there's two that I want to talk about today. The first one is we are secular, and the original audience was not. Now, if you grew up like me, secular was a bad word, right? The bad word. That was something we avoided. We Christians, we're not secular. But we're not religious either. Because we like relationship. We don't, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. But we're not secular because secular is bad. And we have to save the world from secularism. Because the secular humanists are the ones that are destroying the world. I, I mean, like, secular was a bad word. Listen, it's not a bad word. It's just a description. 
And it's just who we are. Charles Taylor wrote a really big, fat, hairy book that he won the Templeton Prize in Religion for that talks all about this. It's way above my pay grade. I'm 70 pages in after one year of reading. It's 900 pages. But he does a masterful job in making the argument that we are, we live in a secular world. It's not a good thing or a bad thing per se. It's just the way we interpret the world. And, and this is what it means by this. So stick with me here. This audience that got this letter or heard this sermon absolutely believed in angels. They would have since they were a child. There would never have been a time where they didn't assume that there were supernatural entities or beings associated that they couldn't see interacting with them on a daily basis, even into the minute details of their life. They just assumed that they were, they were living in a whole supernatural world. They would have assumed that, of course, you make some kind of offering or volition or sacrifice to appease these deities, angels, gods, demigods, things like that. That you would ascribe sicknesses or blessings or that other people may appear as a human being, but they really weren't. They might have been an angel. They might have really not been a human or an animal. That really might not have been an animal. It could have been an angel. Like those, those things would have, you would have had to work to not believe that. You would have been the outsider to somehow come away and say that's not true somehow. Their default engagement with the world was a divinized world. The default stance of any person was to believe. That's not how it is in our world. I'm not arguing for or against the existence of angels. But what I'm saying is, our default position in our world is they're not there, or they're not important. Sure, sometimes we get an awareness of certain things we can't understand, that are mysterious. But we don't go through our world. We're not bought up in homes where, where we teach our children to watch out, to not offend a spirit, or to curry the favor of an angel. Also, our evangelism is primarily to get people to believe in God. Evangelism in the New Testament was to get people to believe in Jesus. The assumption was they already believed in God, or a God, or some gods. Evangelism was to just kind of switch teams. Our evangelism is to come play ball. And that's just what it means for a secular imagination. Is that we, we have to work to believe these things. The original audience here, they would have to work not to believe. You with me on that? So that's why we read this, it's confusing. <clears throat> we read this, our immediate instinct is to break it down theologically and figure out what kind of doctrine is going on. What is this saying about the order of the angels and the whole thing? That's not, what the, that's not what the writer's doing. The writer is just saying, hey, guys, our God is the one. Jesus, he's better than 
all these things that you've grown up with, all these ways you've lived your life, we're free from that because we found the one who exists above all those things. It's not denying they exist. As a matter of fact, it's affirming they exist. But it's making an emotional appeal. Hey, you're no longer bound by all those things. With that. So that's our first challenge. And we're, we're going to encounter this throughout the whole book. We encounter this throughout reading the whole Bible. Truly is that we always have to just remember, and again, it's not a bad thing. You just have to remember, I am reading this from a secular orientation. What does that mean? And and it would mean, the writing would mean something different to the original. So, that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Um, this is an emotional appeal. And we don't read scripture that way. We don't read scripture emotionally. We have been taught to dissect it, pull it apart, to memorize it, but to analyze it. And where has this led us? Look at how broken we are. Look at how dis dis disjointed we are because we argue over theoretical. We have put the prominence of the understanding, intellectual understanding, over any kind of emotional engagement. And I'm going to suggest three reasons. There's more, but I'm going to suggest three reasons why this is. And the first one is patriarchy. The reason why we don't read the Bible emotionally with an emotional competence is patriarchy. Because the feminine voice has been silenced, subjugated, belittled, and dismissed. Look, <clears throat> you ever heard the argument? Um, women are just too emotional. I, I mean, probably nobody here has heard that. But there is an argument out there that, you know, women are just too emotional to, to do this. They can't be leaders. They can't read this stuff. They're just too emotional. Right? <laughs> They're getting lost and girls are getting real red over there. <laughs> well, that's that's I'm not gonna use the colloquial term for what that is, but that is a lot of um bovine manure. Um women are not too emotional and they're not more emotional. The feminine emotion is just a different emotion. It's a complementary. The masculine and the feminine are two parts of the whole with that. I mean, I, I love the argument when they say women aren't emotional. I'm like, have you ever been to a football game? Like, what, what the heck is that? Um, anyway, we need both. And because we've been, because we belittle, dismissed, and diminished one side of our emotions, we read it with without an emotional competency with that. We need both. Hebrews, again, I can't say for certain, no one can, but one of the reasons why I lean towards um, that Priscilla is the author of this is because I believe it brings a different emotional import to the text. It's written from a different emotional um, persuasiveness than we see in other parts of the world with that. Again, not necessarily, we can't define it for sure, but it seems that way. 
So the first thing is patriarchy. The second thing is Gnosticism. So Gnosticism is this idea that we are saved by this theoretical knowledge apart from our being. <clears throat> the Gnostics were Greeks that believed that everything that was material was bad. Your bodies were bad. Your, your emotions were bad. That the only thing that was good was pure intellect. And those that were, that were detached and thought purely intellectually and were not affected by their emotions were the ones who were superior and who would be saved. Paul fought the Gnostics. We fight the Gnostics today. I dare say in many ways the Gnostics have won in the Western American church. There's reasons for that. Historically, we don't have time to go into. But when we, when we see this in this overemphasis on doctrine, that, hey, if you believe in 98% of the doctrine that I do, but that 2% we disagree on, then we are dis, you're disfellowship. Or we're going to take our pet doctrine, our one thing, and we're going to say, if you don't believe, you can believe whatever you want, but if you don't believe, agree with me on this one thing, then you're not a Christian anymore, or you're out there. <clears throat> that is a Gnostic response to things. And Gnosticism um, leads, it leads to all kinds of abuse and misunderstanding with that. We are embodied people. We, fo we follow a God who is incarnate. That alone ought to be instructive enough to us that we have to understand our, we have to understand our faith emotionally, physically. That's the only way we can understand it. With that, we can't detach what we think from what we feel, with what we believe from our bodily experience. So we we have to be balanced in our emotions. We have to have the whole thing there, but we cannot be Gnostics. <clears throat> and the last thing, which goes into these other two things, is. We lack healthy examples, practices, and experiences. We, we don't know how to be emotionally healthy. I'm, I'm learning. I'm learning. Alex will tell you, you know, that um, early on it was, it was confusing to him because I was brought up that you were never rewarded for showing anger. In my family, the way that I grew up, culture that I grew up, was anger. You could, you could be happy, you could be wild, you could do all these things, but anger was never rewarded. And so I learned, I learned never to show my anger. Or if I did, I was really sure, I mean, I was, had to be really sure that everybody was in agreement, we were all doing this, this is okay, it's good, right? We can do this, yes, yeah, like, with that. So I'm still learning this. Um, I mean, I've told this story before with Jane. When we first got married, when she would cry, you know what I would do? Laugh. Yeah, still alive, much less married, right? I didn't, I had no idea what to do. I had no idea what to do. She would, she would cry and I would start to laugh. And we are still married, and I am still alive. But, I mean, I was, like, my emotional competency has it grown. <laughs> um, I just didn't have examples. 
And I didn't have practices that, that allowed for that. I didn't have encouragement for that. And I didn't have experiences that were positive with it. So I just, I didn't know. As a result, we get, when we, when we feel these strong emotions, we get flustered, we get fearful, and we get discouraged. Because we're still not rewarded. Even a healthy expression of emotions. You're not going to get rewarded in our society. It's not the way our society works. Shannon um, asked the question as we were preparing this. She said, we need to be curious about what makes us uncomfortable. To which I say, absolutely, yes. And I'm learning to do that. But that's not, our society doesn't reward you for that. Our society doesn't say, hey, guys, here's something that makes us all really uncomfortable. Let's go. I mean, that's, it's just not what happens, right? We avoid it. We whitewash our history to avoid the slightest bit of being uncomfortable. We will ignore, suppress um, anything to not deal with anything that makes us uncomfortable with that. And we're paying the price for it. Like we're paying the price for it every day in our individual lives, much less our society. All this and other things I'm sure have led us to a profound distrust of certain emotions and severely handicapped in our ability to lead emotionally healthy lives. Because as a result, because we can't practice healthy emotions, our emotions get manipulated. We're emotionally manipulated, we're abused. We've all had experiences where, where we're, we're faced with extreme emotions. We don't know how to respond to it. We don't know how to respond to an emotional argument. We, we just don't know how to do that. And so we either get run over or we just leave, go away from it. Um, and because of our general tendency to emotional stunting, like I said, we're easily manipulated by people using them against us. And so what we do is we reject the whole thing, whole set, and we retreat into just academic doctrine. We retreat to, well, how, what, what kind of angels are they talking about here? Why do they do this specific way? And listen, those are good to do. That's not bad to do. It's just not the import. It's not the purpose of this. The purpose is to get emotional. The purpose is to say, to, to feel the emotional, like, oh, yes, I remember. Yes, you're right. Yes, that makes sense. Jesus does this. It's to feel it with that. <clears throat> Ask the worship team to come back up. The argument being made in our text this week is that we should swell with excitement and awe at the understanding that Jesus is better even than the angels. That's the emotional, that's the emotional appeal. For us, that means embracing and celebrating the fact that Jesus is better than any philosophy, psychology, theory, or history. We see that Jesus overcomes every other thing that claims authority over our past, present, or future well-being. That in and through Jesus, we can overcome whatever it is that threatens or assaults us. Now hear me, I'm not saying that to the exclusion 
of psych psychiatry or medicine or anything like that. I'm just saying, Jesus is overall. Ultimately, Jesus is overall with that. Well, I'm going to wrap up going back to Spufford. He writes, <coughs> he writes this. He says, I am a fairly orthodox believer. Every Sunday, I do my best to mean the whole of the creed, which is a series of propositions. But still, it is a mistake to believe that this that it is this assent to the propositions that makes you a believer. It is the feelings that are primary. I assent to the ideas because I have the feelings. I do not have the feelings because I assent to the ideas. They are going to do a very a, a song you may not have heard in church. What I want you to do is feel it. Now this may only connect with a certain generation in here, I understand. But I just want you to feel the emotions and go with it as we go. So, thank you. Took my love, took and died. I climbed a mountain and then I turned around. And I saw my reflection in the snow-covered hands when the landslide brought me down. Oh, mirror in the sky, what is love? Can the child within my heart rise above? Can I sail through the changing ocean tides? Can I handle the seasons of my
Oh. 
Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. If you would like to give, you can go to gracechurchnwa.org forward slash give. You can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org. Grace and peace.